0: Good morning, how are you this morning? You guys are a lot more awake than I expected, I better bring it. All right, well this morning we are kicking off our study to the book of Jonah. Last week Jody gave us a brief, a very brief intro to the book and this morning we're going to dive right into Jonah 1. And even before you came to this study, I think it's very likely that many of you know something about the story of Jonah. Even if you never grew up in church or any of that, you've heard about the story of Jonah. And if you know anything about Jonah's story, you know it's about a man somehow disobeying God and getting swallowed up by a huge fish. And oftentimes, as it relates to that story, uh, people will come to me and say, how can you believe the Bible? How can you trust the Bible when it's full of stories about men getting swallowed up by huge fish and living in its belly for three days? That's just crazy. And I usually respond with something like this. I say, you're right, that is crazy. But there are crazier things than that in the Bible. I mean, legit, the Bible is full of some crazy stuff. Like the entire premise of the gospel is about a God who comes to a poor teenage virgin girl who by the power of the spirit conceives a child who happens to be the son of God. And then Jesus, the son of God, lives on the earth. He lives a perfect life. He performs all kinds of miracles. He... he heals the lame, opens the ears of the deaf, he gives sight to the blind, people touch the hem of his garment and they're healed, he walks on water, he brings dead people back to life. He does all these things, all kinds of ministry, and then he dies on the cross. But he doesn't stay dead, no, 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 he rises from the dead and he shows himself to his disciples and he hangs out with them for 40 days. And then he, he ascends into the heavens right in front of their eyes and one day, one day he's coming back to rule and reign as our rightful king. And you think, and you think the story of Jonah's crazy. When you think about it like that, Jonah's story isn't so hard to believe, is it? The question that we need to ask as we wrestle with things like this is really this. Here's the question. Is there a God who's at work in our world? Is there a God who's actively and intimately involved in sustaining our world, providing for the needs of people, especially those who follow him in faith? Is there a God who's at work in our world? Do you believe in the providence of God? That's the question that we asked as we study the book of Esther, that's the question we're gonna ask as we look at the book of Jonah. There's two themes in uh, the book of Jonah, sin and grace. The story of Jonah is about a man who runs from God and a God who pursues him. And sin is running from God. And grace is God's effort to pursue us, to put an end to our self destructive behavior. And I wonder if you've ever been in a place like that. I wonder if you've ever run from God. And if you answer no, I must lovingly tell you that you're lying, and I'm saying that from one liar to another. Because there have been times in my life if you asked me that, I would would have said no, no, I'd never run from God. But that would be a lie. We've all run from God at one time or another. Maybe we're even running right now. I spent an entire lifetime running from God. I grew up in the church, I heard the gospel a 100 times, but I wanted nothing to do with God. I know what it's like to run from God, and if I could be very honest with you, there are times, even now, as a follower of Jesus, when I run from God. Because you could be doing all the right things, all the things that you think you're supposed to be doing. You could be going to church, you could be doing your Bible study, you could be leading Bible study, you could be serving, you could be doing all all the right things, and there can still be places in your life where you are running from God where God has called you to do something and you said no, you have rebelled against God. It seems too hard, too much, too uncomfortable, and so we say no. We rebel against the God of the universe. Maybe for you, it's a relationship that just isn't God's best for you, but you want it anyway. Maybe it's a sacrifice of your finances God's placed a burden or a need on your heart, but it just seems too costly. Maybe God's calling you to love someone who has hurt you deeply, and you just don't know how to do it. Or maybe, like Jonah, God is calling you to do something crazy, and you don't want to do it. And so we rebel, we say no to God, we run from God. Now here's the thing about God. While our sin may be great, His grace is greater. His grace is always greater, and that's what we see in Jonah one. And so what I wanna do this morning is to walk through the beginning of Jonah's story with you, and here's what I wanna show you. Sin is running from God, but grace is pursuing us through the storm. Sin is running from God, but grace is pursuing us through the storm. And so all I wanna do is walk through Jonah one with you, share with you two observations And then I just wanna leave you with some questions to help us reflect upon our own lives with. See where we're going? You ready to do this? All right, let's go, Jonah one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. The story of Jonah begins with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. Now this is the usual way to begin an account of how God would speak to one of his prophets. And in 2 Kings fourteen twenty-five, we read about Jonah and we learn that he's one of Israel's prophets. He's a man of God who served under the reign of King Jeroboam II. And unlike some of the other prophets of his time who criticized Israel for, for its injustice and idolatry, Jonah supported Jeroboam's aggressive military strategy to extend Israel's power and influence by enlarging its boundaries. Jonah was a patriot, he loved his country. He loved his people. And God calls him, of all people, to go to Nineveh, and to, to, which was the capital of Assyria, and to preach against it. Now up until this time, God's prophets had been sent only to God's people. But here God is telling Jonah to go to Israel's greatest enemy. Jonah's mission was unheard of. This has never happened before. Assyria was not just Israel's greatest enemy at the time, but they were also one of the most ruthless and cruel and violent empires of the ancient world. Assyrian kings would record the results of their many military victories. They would brag about planes being scattered with corpses cities burned to the ground. They would conquer city after city, and they would skin alive, men, women, and children, and then they would spread out their skins on the city walls, and then they would take these skinned people, and they would kill them. They would rape women and little girls, and they would boast about it in their military accounts. They would behead people and they would, they would make a mountain of heads outside of the city and they would say this is what happens to those who dare oppose the Assyrians. They were a terrorist state and Jonah and the Israelites had been their victims. They'd been victims of Assyrian cruelty. And God tells Jonah to go to these people and he doesn't want to go. Do you blame him? This seems like a suicide mission. His chances of success are slim and the probability of death and and imprisonment are very high. This mission also doesn't make sense because the prophet Nahum had some years before prophesied that God would destroy Nineveh for its evil. And Jonah and Israel know about this prophecy. It makes sense to them. Assyria was an evil empire and God would deal with them. He would give them what they deserve. So why would God now call Jonah to go to Nineveh? If he preached God's truth to these people, they would repent, they they could repent, they could turn from their evil ways, and how would that make sense with what Nahum had already prophesied? So here's what Jonah does. Verse three, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Here's the first observation. Sin is running from God. Jonah heads to Joppa and he gets on a ship that's headed for Tarshish, that's 1,500 miles away from Nineveh. It's in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. He gets on the ship and he tries to get away from God as far as he can. As far as he can humanly find, sin is running from God. Sin is rebelling against God. It's saying no to God. And Jonah decided that because he couldn't see any good reason for what God commanded, he just thought he shouldn't do it. He doubted God's goodness, God's wisdom, God's justice. And he thought he knew better. You ever been in a place like that? The first step of faith in Jesus is to admit that you have run from God. And listen to me, you, you can be a follower of Jesus, you, have, you could have placed your trust in him and there can still be places in your life where you are running from God. You could be reading your Bible, you could be praying, you could be in church all the time, you could be doing all these things and yet there can still be places in our lives where we are rebelling against God. Where God has called us to do something and we say no. And if we want to be people who grow and who are formed in the way of Jesus, we must first admit that we're on the run from God. And to do that, we must be aware of our propensities and our strategies to sin. We must ask ourselves the question, what are the strategies that I use to run from God? What are the strategies that I use to say no to God? So let me tell you what I do. When I run from God, I do two things. One, I ignore the promptings of the Spirit in my life. The Spirit of God has told me that what I'm doing is wrong, that it's contrary to God's good desires for my life, and I do it anyway. I ignore the promptings of the Spirit in my life. The second thing I do is I think I can fix me. I think I can fix it myself. I think I can control my life. I can control my world. Now, to understand that, you need to know a little bit about my story. And so, a significant part of my story is that I was sexually abused as a little girl from the ages of 10 to 12, and I never told anyone, at least not until many years later, well into adulthood. Now, the Lord has been gracious to me, He's healed me, He's bound up my wounds, He's restored me in ways I cannot even describe and I would have never imagined. And He's still doing all those things. He's still healing me. He's still restoring me. He's still making me the person that He's always intended me to be. But I know what it's like to feel helpless. I know what it's like to feel out of control. I know what it's like to feel afraid, to spend every minute of your life being afraid. And so I learned to survive. I learned that in order to get by, I had to fix me. I had to control my life. Do you know who I am, God? Do do you know what I've been through? Do you know what I've overcome? I can fix me, God. I can control my life. Now, I'd never say that out loud, but that is the inner voice of my heart quite often. My greatest fears in life are rejection, betrayal, abandonment and I will do everything, everything in my power to avoid those things. So I try to fix me. I try to fix people around me so that they make me happy. I try to control my life. I try to control my world. The only problem is that doesn't work. I can't fix me and I can't control hardly anything. We must know, we must be aware of the strategies that we use to run from God, of the strategies that we use to say no to God. And maybe you're like me, and maybe the strategy that you use is you try to fix yourself, or you try to control your world. Or maybe the strategy that you use is that you run and hide and you try to cover up your shame. Well, that's the oldest one in the book. That's what Adam and Eve did at the very beginning of time. Do you remember? They sinned against God, and what did they do? They they ran and they hid. And they felt naked and ashamed, and so they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. What are the strategies that you use to run from God? And listen, a lot of times, most times, you can't always figure that out on your own. I've needed trusted friends who will walk alongside me, who will love me, who, who, who will say, this isn't God's best for you. This isn't right, there's something wrong here. I've needed to to go to a counselor for him to help me figure out why do I do what I do? I don't even know why I do it and I don't wanna do it. Help me figure this out. Oftentimes, we need people outside of us to help us understand and be aware of the strategies that we use. The most profound self-knowledge that you will ever have is to be aware of the strategies that you use to run from God. To say no to God. Because if you want a relationship with God, you must not see yourself not as a you must see yourself not as a self-sufficient person who, who's got everything figured out, but as a runaway. You you have to admit that you're weak and that you're powerless and that you're helpless, that you're in desperate need of God. And until you see that, until you recognize that, until you admit that, you can never take a step towards God. You just can't the default mode of the human heart is to think that we know better. Apart from the work of the spirit, the default mode of the human heart is to think that we know better than God. I've got this, maybe I need Jesus to save me from my sins, but i got this, I can figure this out. And if you believe that, That's a lie that the enemy whispers to you to keep you from deep intimacy with God. We doubt that God is good, that he's fiercely committed to our good, to our happiness, to our joy, and so we don't see any good reason to follow him, to do what he's called us to do. Now here is the other thing that we need to notice. If you're running from God, there will always be a ship heading to Tarshish. I've sat across from women who, and who are in the middle of adulterous affairs, who, who sit across from me and tell me, you don't understand. I'm miserable in my marriage. My husband is a terrible man. A- and then this, this man just came into my life and I feel so much happiness. This must be from God. <laughs> I've sat across from people like that. Listen to me. this is serious, we can laugh about it, but this is real, and each one of us, this could be me, and this could be you. I could be the person who's saying that. Because if you are running from God, you will always find a ship headed to Tarshish. But that is a trap from the enemy to destroy your life. You can choose to run from God or you can choose to run to God. You can choose to obey even when it doesn't make sense, or you can look for a ship headed to Tarshish, and I promise you, you will find one. Because there will be, always be opportunities to sin, there will always be opportunities to run from God. The question is what will you choose? Let's keep going. Verse 4. They're crying out to any God imaginable. They're trying to lighten the load on the ship. They're doing everything possible to keep this ship afloat in the storm. And Jonah is fast asleep. Now, it's likely this isn't a restful sleep. Perhaps Jonah is exhausted. Perhaps he's just tired from, from experiencing the despair that comes when you rebel against God. Whatever the case, Jonah's completely unaware of the storm. And so the sailors cast lots to figure out who's responsible for this, and the lot falls on Jonah. Now here's the deal with sin. Here's the deal with running from God. Our sin affects others. We rarely sin in isolation. We rarely sin in private. Jonah's sin affected the lives of these sailors. Usually, another person or another relationship will suffer because of our sin. We think we're running from God and it's only about us, but our running from God will inflict damage and wound those around us. That's how sin works. Now, sin feels good, right? I mean, if it didn't feel good, we wouldn't do it. It it feels good to resent someone for something that they did to us. It feels good to to think about if I just said this, if I just did this. It feels good to fantasize about how we might get back at them. They deserve your anger. But after some time, anger and resentment builds up, and you'll find yourself imprisoned in a world of, of bitterness. And here's the thing with sin, you don't always feel the pain and the damage of it right away. Sin is like a silent killer, it's like this cancer that ravages the inside of your body. It causes your body to break down and decay and you don't know that right away. You don't feel the pain of it immediately but after some time you begin to see the devastating results. Sin eats us up from the inside out. Here's the second observation. God graciously intervenes in our lives. God graciously intervenes through storms in our lives to free us from our self-sufficiency. Every act of disobedience, every act of running from God has a storm attached to it. Jonah runs from God and and he disobeys God and the result is immediate and drastic. A furious, violent storm comes at him. Now let me be clear, I, I want you to hear this. Most storms of life, don't come to us as a result of our sin, but they're just the result of living in a broken world. So I'm not saying that every difficult circumstance, every trial in your life is God punishing you for sin. That, that would not be in line with scripture. That's not what we, what we see God teach us. Tim Keller puts it this way. The Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin, but it does teach that every sin will bring you difficulty. As followers of Jesus, here's what we can be assured of. When storms come into our lives, whether they're the result of our sin or not, God has promised that he will use them for our good. Paul writes this, and we know that in all things, all things, God works together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Every storm is not the result of sin, but every storm can help shape us and form us to be more like Jesus. Storms teach us truth and and allow that truth to penetrate into the deepest, darkest crevices of our hearts. We develop greater faith and hope and patience, love, humility through the storms of our lives. Through storms, God is graciously and lovingly showing us that we're not in control, that that we are helpless, and that we are weak. God wants you to see who you really are. And if you're running from God, the enemy doesn't want you to see how bad your condition is. He doesn't want you to see how out of control you really are, how you can't fix yourself. But God uses the storms in your life to show you your true condition and he does it out of love. He wants to show you that you're not smart enough, you're not resourceful enough, you're not strong enough. God's grace is a gritty, resolute, untiring love that will not stop until it frees you of your self-sufficiency and shows you your great and desperate need for him. Grace is determined to pursue you until you stop running from God and start running to God. Let's keep going. Verse eight. So they asked him, tell us who's responsible for making this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sailors asked Jonah three things. What's your purpose? What's your place? And who are your people? And each of those questions is related to identity. And every one of us gets our identity from something or someone. Identity reveals what we have given ourselves to, what really controls us, and who or what we're really placing our trust in. And Jonah responds to these questions in the reverse and he begins with his people. He says, I am a Hebrew. One scholar has noted that Jonah identifies himself first ethnically and then religiously and so we may infer from his response that his ethnicity is foremost in his identity. At the core of who he was, Jonah's love for his country was greater than his love for God. And when love for his country conflicted with his love for his God, He chose his country over God. Now we're not told Jonah's reason for not going to Nineveh in chapter one. We we learn only about it in in Jonah four, verse two. And here's what Jonah says. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah was a patriot. His identity was centered around his ethnicity and he could not understand how God could save this evil people, the sworn enemies of Israel. Jonah refused to obey God because he didn't want God to show grace and compassion to these people. Jonah had a case of misplaced identity. His identity wasn't rooted in the truth that he was a follower of Yahweh, the one true God. And because of that, he he could not fully follow God's plan for him. He didn't really trust God. He didn't believe that God was fier- fiercely and deeply committed to his good. And so he ran from God. And God uses the storms in our lives to show us our misplaced identity and to remind us of who we are and whose we are. We are daughters of the God of the universe. We are beloved daughters of the God of the universe and that truth ought to radically, radically change how we live. Let's pick up at verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied. It will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now, I don't think what's happening here is that Jonah is repenting. Like, like most of life, it's a little more nuanced and complex than we'd like it to be. Jonah doesn't use the language of repentance here. And so, and as we continue with his story, we'll see that he's got a long way to go before he's free of his self-sufficiency. He, he doesn't make any mention of God when he tells the sailors to throw him into the sea. I think what's happening here is that Jonah realizes that he's responsible for what's happening to these men. He realizes that it's his fault that they're in the middle of this storm. His sin has affected them. And oftentimes, that's what leads us to stop running from God. When we see how our sin has affected others, that's often the first step to to, to free us from our self-sufficiency and from our sin. The men try to do everything they can to get back to land, but they can't. And so they throw Jonah into the water and the raging sea grows calm. Sin is running from God. Jonah ran from God because he didn't really trust in God's goodness, and that's what sin is. It's a refusal to believe that God is more committed to your good, more aware of your good than you are. We think we know better. We think we know how our lives ought to turn out. We think we know what will bring us joy and happiness. We think we know better than God. And the worst thing that could happen to us is that we would be unaware of the strategies that we use to run from God. And that we would be blind to our own self-sufficiency. Sin is running from God. But God graciously intervenes through the storms in our lives, to free us from our self-sufficiency. Through the storms of our lives, God is graciously and lovingly showing us that we're not in control, that we're helpless and weak and powerless and that we're in desperate need from, of, of Him. Through the storms in our lives, God is, God's grace is determined to pursue us until we stop running from Him and start running to Him. Tim Keller says that, that God gave Jonah a mission that could have led to death and suffering a mission that didn't make sense to him, a mission that he wanted nothing to do with, and so Jonah says no. But Jesus is the better Jonah, and God gave Jesus a mission that did lead to death, that did lead to suffering, and Jesus said yes. He willingly went to the cross for you and for me. And if you can understand that, if if you can experience the depth of God's love for you through the sacrifice of his son, if you could believe that he's fiercely and deeply committed to your good, so committed to your good that he was willing to give everything up to secure your joy, your freedom, your happiness, your peace, if you could believe that, then you can trust him even in the middle of the storm. The question for us this morning is this. Are you running from God? Are there places in your life where you know God is calling you to think or to act or to respond in a certain way and you have said no, you have rebelled against God? The invitation of our Father is to stop running from him and to start running to him, to turn to him, to place your trust in him. And if this morning you're sitting here and you're in the middle of the storm, whether it's a result of your own sin or just the result of living in a broken world, if that's you this morning, here's what you can be sure of. God's grace is pursuing you even in the storm. He is intimately and actively involved in your life. He is lovingly pursuing you in the storm and he is doing something in you through the storm. He is forming you and shaping you to be more like Jesus. He he is forming you and shaping you to be the person that he's always destined you to be. Trust him in the storm. Sin is running from God, but grace is pursuing us through the storm. And so what I want to do now is just to give you a few moments to reflect upon your own lives. David writes this in Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Anyone have any anxious thoughts here this morning? (laughs) See if there is any offensive, any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I wanna invite you just to take a few moments and, and in the quietness of your heart just between you and the Lord to ask God to search your heart, to show you areas of your life, places in your life where you are running from him. And if you're in the middle of the storm this morning, if you're feeling like you're just getting pummeled by the waves, ask him to help you trust him right where you are. God is deeply committed to your good. He is more than you can understand, more than you can comprehend, more than you could imagine. And you can run to him, even in the middle of your mess, in the middle of your failures, in the middle of your sin. He does not turn away from you. He does not reject you. He does not abandon you. He welcomes you. He moves towards you with love and compassion. This is who your God is. So I just want to give you a few moments just to quietly reflect in your heart. And then I'll close us in prayer. This is your time. Oh, Father, we come to you now so grateful for your grace and your compassion and your love towards us that never ends, that never changes, a love that we cannot even comprehend, a love that carries us through the storms of our lives. And so I ask, God, that you would help us to to stop running from you and to start running to you. And for, for those of us who are in the middle of storms where it feels like we can't even go on anymore, Would you help us to trust you, knowing that you are fiercely committed to our good, more aware of our good than we even know? Help our unbelief. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.